Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our 21-22 Grand Round series. Uh, it is really great to be back with you. Hopefully you're logged in, having your cup of coffee, enjoying the morning, last few days of, of summer, getting ready for uh, another wonderful year of, uh, of CME learnings uh, through Connecticut Children's and our team here. Uh, we welcome you and please continue to join us every Tuesday morning at eight o'clock. We'll be here for you. We'll also have a number of Friday Ask the Expert sessions with John Shriver and, and uh, additional guests that we will have for you. So again, very excited with the lineup. Please check in on the website for each of the sessions that we have. Today, we have uh, one of the most popular series, the one given by Joyce Lagnis, who uh, has been a team member with uh, Helping Connecticut Children's in so many ways for well over a decade. And you know, she's somebody who we go to all the time to get advice and help. I'm going to have Michelle Koss, who's our Senior Director for Risk Management, do a brief introduction because I know Joyce has a lot of slides and she'll be joining us remotely today. So Joyce, thank you very much. And then we'll have questions at the end. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Good morning, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing a friend of Connecticut Children's, attorney Joyce Lagnice. Ms. Lagnice is one of the founding principals of Danaher Lagnice. She serves as co-managing principal and head of the Medical Malpractice Defense Unit. Ms. Lagnice has over 35 years of experience defending medical malpractice throughout the state of Connecticut and with the De Connecticut Department of Public Health. Each year, the Risk Management Department seeks to find a legal medical topic that is currently affecting Connecticut Children's Medical Center. This year, Ms. Lagnice is here to speak with all of us on the current medical malpractice trends in Connecticut. Please join me in welcoming Attorney Lagnice. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me. Um, I'm not sure why you have me back every year. I feel a little bit like I'm a bad penny. For you younger folks, that is a person in your life who you don't want to hear from because they always bring bad news. I prefer to characterize my role as enlightening you to the realities of the hidden devil that sits out there in your world. And my premise is that um, it's always better to deal with the devil that you know. And so um, I'm gonna help you get to know the devil so that you can sidestep him. So what we're gonna discuss today, today we think we're gonna do something a little differently. Normally we pick one topic and just focus on it. Today I've got a myriad of topics that I think are really critical. And so I'm gonna, I do have a lot of slides and I'm probably gonna move through them fairly quickly. Um, I am going to leave time for questions, and I also want you to know that if, if there isn't enough time to answer all of your questions, any one of you can call me or email me at any time, and I'm happy to, to discuss any topic with you. So we're going to talk about the status of the medical legal, I'm going to give you sort of an overview of the current medical legal climate in Connecticut. We're going to identify the principal claims in medicine and surgery, and then I want to focus on the current challenges that we are experiencing in defending malpractice cases under the current models of care uh, and the technology documentation that we're seeing, and, and in particular, the electronic chart. Um, and then with that frame of reference, we're gonna identify some strategies to reduce, number one, reduce the risk of lawsuits um, at the outset, but secondarily, and, and just as importantly, increasing the defensibility of cases which do get filed. And lastly, I'm gonna chat a little bit about um, the pitfalls of sending colleagues under the bus, charting criticisms against colleagues is becoming a very common occurrence in healthcare and has some significant pitfalls uh, and legal um, implications that need to be appreciated. So how common are medical malpractice suits? Well, um, according to the New England Journal of Medicine, 99% of physicians face at least one lawsuit by the age of 65. Rand Corporation reported recently that the average physician spends over 10% of his or her career dealing with litigation. So how concerned should you be about getting sued? Well, statistically, if you haven't been sued yet, you will. And if you already have, uh, you know what the toll of enduring the litigation process is. So this is really to set the stage for the imperatives of avoiding lawsuits because they're strong. Interestingly, there was a survey, a 2017 survey of 4,000 physicians by Medscape 
and it found that 58% of physicians who were sued were very surprised by the suit. And the point here is that most physicians do not see the lawsuit coming and they're blindsided by it. And there are some implications to that that I'll circle back to down the road. 80% of the physicians felt that the suit was unwarranted, which is consistent with my experience because a large majority of lawsuits against doctors do not have merit. Um, but what is all too common is that the critical evidence necessary to effectively tell the story and defend the lawsuit is not effectively told in the medical chart. And so the fact that the suit isn't warranted doesn't mean that as it's presented to a jury based on the medical chart, it won't prevail. That is unforced errors, so to speak, which, which we can, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit and, and which you have some control over. 49% of physicians had been named in between two and five lawsuits and 30%, 33%, about a third of the physicians felt that the lawsuit negatively affected their overall medical career. Um, there are emotional implications to lawsuits and, and they're profound. And those of you who have been through it understand um, there are physicians who are able to shake it off easily, but most of you are profoundly affected. There is actually a syndrome that's now presented itself and it's in the medical literature, medical not practice stress syndrome, and it's akin to post-traumatic stress syndrome. And the symptoms include anxiety, depression, restlessness, fatigue. And in many cases, the symptoms become chronic. And so there's another imperative for doing what you can to avoid lawsuits. So I wanna chat about the status of the medical legal climate in Connecticut. Every year, the Connecticut Insurance Department issues what they call the Medical Malpractice Closed Claim Report. And what that report does is all malpractice carriers, including the captive insurers and the commercial insurers, are required every year to present data to the Connecticut Insurance Department on the cases or claims that have been closed during the calendar year. And then every year, the insurance department takes that data and compiles it into a report that provides information about uh, the, the, the frequency of claims, the amount of money that's being paid out in claims, and they look at trends over time. The report that was issued, well, interestingly, this is a, just a little stale because the last report was issued in June of 2020. And um, they actually issued a report recently for 2021. And what they do is they do a five-year look back. Um, the 2021 report is a little hard to interpret because it interpreted the year 2020, which was sort of not a characteristic because COVID totally changed the dynamics for settlements and trials of cases. But here's what the, the data uh, through 2021 shows is that the claims volume in Connecticut is stable, although 2020 and 2021 are very low years because of COVID, but we're generally speaking seeing between two and 300 cases a year. The problem is, and the bad news, is that the severity of claims is increasing. Um, in, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but there were 2000, almost 3,000 malpractice claims closed between 2014 and 2018. And this is interesting data, 48% and encouraging resulted in no payment to the plaintiff. And, and that means statistically, the chances of a medical malpractice claim never making it to trial and being withdrawn are very high. Almost 50% of cases die on the vine. And that has certainly been my experience. Of the remainder, 93% of cases are settled before trial. When we try cases, we win them. 86% of cases that were tried during that five-year period resulted in defense verdicts. Um, this is important. The average time from the lawsuit, okay, that's the time the suit is filed, to resolution was three years, all right? And this has important implications that I'll circle back to a little bit later. But the average time from injury, which means the average time from when you cared for the patient to the resolution of the case is almost five years. And you can expect because of the, there hasn't been a medical malpractice case tried in almost two years. And it's not looking like we're going to start trying med-mal cases probably until after the first of the year. So we're looking at an almost two-year additional delay to what is already in queue. So we're looking at five to six years between the time you cared for the patient and the time that the case gets resolved. And this has very important implications that we'll get to in a minute. The average indemnity payment all right, during uh, that five-year period was $783,000. Uh, 
the aggregate was one point, uh, well, the aggregate in the five-year period was $1.62 billion. So a lot of money is being paid out in claims, and, and the feeling is that a lot of it, a fair percentage of it is unnecessary and due to unforced errors on the part of physicians. And I don't mean errors in medical care. I mean, really errors in, in documentation that make it more challenging to defend the medical care. Um, the 2021 data, the average indemnity paid in 2021 was 844,000. And what the 2021 report reflects is that the severity of cases is continuing to increase, which of course is reflected in the indemnity. Indemnity payment is the amount of money that is paid out by the insurance company to settle the case. So uh, the indemnity average is rising and that's because of the increase in severity of, of uh, and so 1.16 billion was paid over that five year period. And just to give you a historical perspective, in 2009, the amount paid out in the aggregate was 169 million. Ratchet forward to 2019, and we're talking 311 million. So that's just to give you an idea of, of the pace of the increase of uh, payments in medical malpractice cases in Connecticut. So why are uh, the settlements so high? Well, the high settlements are driven by high jury verdicts because the jury ver the amount that you risk losing at trial, of course, is what drives the amount of the settlement. If I'm going to risk a $5 million verdict, I'm going to have to settle that case for a lot more money than if, if my exposure was a million dollars. So why are jury verdicts in Connecticut so high? Um, and it has to do with what Connecticut allows by way of damages in medical malpractice cases. If, you, if a plaintiff prevails to prove liability against a care provider, they're entitled to all of their medical expenses, past and future, any home care costs, costs of home modifications to accommodate a permanent disability, and past and future lost wages all right, or, or loss of earning capacity. Those are the out-of-pocket uh, out of pocket monies that a person who suffers an injury uh, is entitled to. And that's not really the problem. The problem is the non-economic damages, all right? And Connecticut has the longest list of non-economic damages of any state in the country, as far as I know. You get pain and suffering, past and future, mental and emotional distress, past and future, loss of life's enjoyment, past and future. That's for your life expectancy. Increased risk of future harm, all right, if you have an injury that increases the risk of something bad happening in the future, you're entitled to damages for that. And not only that, you're entitled to damages for the fear that that increased risk of future harm might come to fruition. So you get money for the harm um, occurring and you get money for having to worry about the harm occurring in the future. Scarring and disfigurement if you needed a surgery, loss of life, wrongful death, this is always, has always fascinated me. You're entitled to a separate line item for loss of life, okay, in a wrongful death case. And you're also entitled to a separate line item for loss of life's enjoyment. Now, I'm still trying to figure out what the difference is between losing your life, isn't losing your life, losing the, the, the life's enjoyment? No, well, yes, if, <laughs> I think intellectually, but Connecticut allows a separate line item for the loss of life itself. And, and what plaintiff's attorneys argue in that is what is a life worth? And you can imagine um, when six people off the street are called upon with no guidance in terms of money, no cap, what is a life worth? Um, loss of consortium for a spouse. And the two new elements of damage that the Connecticut Supreme Court recently added is loss of parental consortium by minor children. If a parent is disabled and the minor ch children are entitled to damages for the loss of consortium that they experience on account of the disability of their parent or the death of their parent. And bystander emotional distress by family members. If a family member experiences or witnesses malpractice or the injury from malpractice, they are entitled to damages. So, I mean, it just goes on and on. And just to I'm going to run through these quickly because I have so much ground to cover just to give you a flavor of some recent Connecticut jury verdicts. Now, remember, we win almost 90% of the cases we try. The problem is that when we lose them, because of the amount of damages that are awardable, the verdicts are very high. This was a, a case in Bridgeport, failure to timely recognize bowel injury, 3.2 million in economic, 6.2 million in non-economic damages. 
uh, failure to diagnose lung cancer, 200,000 in economic, 2.5 million non-economic. Failure to properly treat a, a blood disorder, Bridgeport, uh, economic one, three, non-economic two million. Uh, wrong, uh, death or failure to form in form of cancer risk. This was a Hartford case, 1.6 million economic, 5.2 million non-economic. Waterbury, uh, this was a pacemaker uh, case, 75,000 in economic, 5.7 million in non-economic damages. And then there was a case in Fairfield, uh, 4 million in economic. This was a below the knee amputation. It was a really sad case. 20 million in non-economic damages. Uh, there was a nervous palsy case tried in London. Uh, no economic damages. 4.2 million in non-economic. So the, you have seven cases with $57 million in verdicts. In every Danbury, Hartford, New London, Waterbury, Bridgeport, doesn't matter where we try these cases. Um, 80% was for non-economic damages, all right? And, and therein lies the problem. Oh, by the way, I always forget about the interest. If you prevail, you are entitled to 8% prejudgment interest, all right? That means 8%, you have to file a piece of paper in court to entitle yourself to this, but the plaintiff's lawyers do it in every case. And then the 8% goes back to the day they filed the lawsuit. And so if you think about it, as I presented earlier, some of these lawsuits take four or five, six years. So sometimes we're dealing with 60% interest that is typically 30 to 40, but with the, with the time delay and the extending time, we're gonna be looking at 40, 50% interest on judgments. Oh, and by the way, if you dare to appeal, if you lose, they're entitled to 10% post-judgment interest. So you can see how intimidating taking these cases to trial is. And it's because of the non-economic damages that we allow. And the solution really are caps on non-economic damages. And 30 states have seen the wisdom of, of having caps on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. And you can probably figure out what states they are by their color. Um, although I will tell you that California was one of the first states in the union to impose caps on non-economic damages, which they did back in 1980. And it was because they couldn't get doctors to come to their state. Um, and they have been the most progressive in keeping damages under control in California. And that's why they've attracted so many physicians there. 20 states, including Connecticut, have no caps on damages. And, and this is really the, the biggest challenge. And, and I think the medical community continues uh, or needs to continue to lobby and um, to get Connecticut into the mainstream of states that mitigate exorbitant malpractice awards. I mean, people aren't, and, and, and pain and suffering and mental and emotional distress is real. But, you know, the legislature has to look at the balance here. And, and we're having challenges, you know, getting people, to, doctors, physicians to come to our state. And a lot of it has to do with the unfriendly climate. And um, I'd like to see that change. And I'm happy to do my part. I've been to the legislature many, many times. But, you know, Connecticut is just not a state um, that is amenable to that. And the plaintiff's bar have been very, very supportive of their legislators over the years. So, so let's move to what are we seeing for claims? The, the nature of claims that we're seeing today is not materially different than what we were seeing when I started practicing 42 years ago. In the medicine, it's failing to diagnose the condition, okay? Therefore failing to treat the condition. And oftentimes, the, um, the lapse or the injury occurs because of failures in follow-up. So those are generally the allegations we see. Failing to timely diagnose, failing to have the condition in the differential um, and to rule out the serious conditions in the differential. Surgery, it's the same as it's always been. You did it wrong. That's what caused the complication, infection, vascular nerve or organ injury, failing to do appropriate preoperative uh, imaging studies to determine the anatomy, um, which is why you ended up with the complication. Um, and then after the complication manifests, you didn't timely identify it and treat it. And the add-on in most of the surgery cases is lack of informed consent. You didn't tell me that, that there was this risk or that you didn't tell me that this risk could be life-threatening. Underestimating the risk is a problem. So now I wanna talk about where you can help us and where, where some of the challenges that we are experiencing in trying to defend 
these cases. And it has to do with the electronic documentation, emailing and text messaging in healthcare. I want to acquaint you with the new e-discovery. They're not new, but because of the electronic, the new move and everything's electronic now, the discovery rules that now pertain to electronic information and then audit trails. So this is just sort of an inventory of the challenges that are presented by the electronic health record in defending medical malpractice cases. First of all, the thorny reality of audit trails, and that's slide in and of itself. The issue that there, there's prescripted nomenclature and um, which is presents challenges, which we'll talk about. Um, Prescripted nomenclature, you know, it's where the, the electronic chart does the documentation for you. And you then um, just, it's in the chart when you open it. Um, and in the, in the interest of time, you go with it. And, it's, and, and we see, I see that many, many times where a physician, when they're sued, says, you know, I really probably should have modified that, but it's close enough. This prescripted nomenclature is a problem. And medicine has a lot of nuance. And, and when you're looking at things retrospectively, anything that's prescripted is looked at with skepticism because the juries know and, and they, they become acquainted with the, the fact that, there's, that the nomenclature is prescripted. The drop-down menus, this is more of a nursing problem, but um, the drop-down menus give you limited choices. And, and typically you'll pick the closest one and go with it. Not 100% accurate, but, but close enough, no nuance. Auto population um, feature, where it's sort of like the prescriptive nomenclature or the, the copy and paste feature also, where you pull things forward or things that you put in a prior visit automatically populate into a subsequent visit and creates a lot of confusion. Um, and that relates to the, the data redundancy because there's just so much data and it's so repetitive. It's, it becomes like white noise and it's hard to know where to look for the important stuff. Um, drag and dictation errors. I can't tell you how many drag and dictation errors I have seen and that have been catastrophic. And, and um, I won't give you, we've, we've had it at Connecticut Children's as well. And the problem, it's not so much dic the dictation error. There's always gonna be dictation errors when you use drag. And the problem is that there's, there's, there's a lack of proofreading to ensure the accuracy. And people are signing notes without proofreading to determine whether or not there are errors. And, and I don't know whatever happened to in-person communication. It, I think it's probably less of a problem at Connecticut Children's, but what the problem is medicine has nuance. And you know, it's very hard. It's like when you get an email from someone, you don't know if it's harsh or not because you really don't know what they're thinking. If you don't have the opportunity to interact, you know, the, the flavor. The, the personality of a, of a case of care really is so much better when there's direct in-person communication between providers. And we've all become so used to just, you know, cut and paste, you know, email this and, and be done with it, that I think, I think medical care is suffering as a result of the lack of, of in-person communication. That's just what I am seeing as I'm defending cases where there's just, it's purely based on the chart with no sensibility of the, the, the detail of the personality. You know, when you used to have to write something out, you wrote it out and you could sort of tell what the personality of the care was or the case or the, the patient. I'm finding that much less uh, uh, evident in the electronic chart. Audit trails. Now you may, many of you probably know this, but um, first of all, in medical malpractice, the plaintiff's lawyers, every case without exception, when they file their initial discovery, they ask for complete audit trails. And it's very hard to object to providing audit trails because the courts are now aware of what the audit trail shows and reflects. And, and it reflects a lot. When you saw the patient, when you placed an order, uh, how, how the, when the results were available to you, how long it took for you to access the results, how long you spent looking at the data, who else looked at the data, did anybody change the data, how long it took for you to act in response to the data. I mean, it's incredible. There's, there's, um, 
and and there's and when the, when the metadata is inconsistent with what you testify to or inconsistent with what the chart reflects it's a problem i mean this this is this is, may sound trite but there's no cheating I mean, there's no gilding the lily it's all there and it's all there for the jury and for and so you, you have to understand that this is your world now so and then we get to the medical care via email and text and this is one of the most frustrating aspects for defense lawyers because there is so much going on between patients and providers by email and text amongst providers providers texting and emailing one another about patients I mean, substantive medical care is occurring via email and text that is not being captured in the medical chart. And it's so easy to do it, you know, to text or to send a quick email. And what happens, remember, the care is today, the lawsuit is two and a half years later, your deposition is a year after that. Where are the texts? Where are the emails? And, and I'm not sure that most physicians or people who are in the medical profession, you know, your office staff, et cetera, are familiar with the duty to preserve evidence, okay? Both Connecticut state and federal courts recognize a duty to preserve evidence. So when does the duty arise? Well, the duty to preserve evidence arises if a reasonable person in the defendant's position should have foreseen that the evidence was material to a potential civil action. So what does that mean in the context of medical care? When does the duty to preserve arise? Well, if you think about it, if we go back to the duty, if a reasonable person should have foreseen that the evidence was material to a potential civil action, doesn't have to be a civil action that's filed, you have a bad outcome. And we know that every bad outcome, okay, has the potential for a civil action, whether whether it whether it's meritorious or not. So, really, a negative patient event resulting in a significant injury, arguably, and I'm not sure how one could argue against this, arises a duty to preserve. An attorney requests for patient medical records. Okay, now. Patients request medical records all the time for auto accident cases, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, if, the, if the attorney request comes in the context of a patient who had an adverse medical event, you should assume it's for a potential medical malpractice case. And that triggers the duty to preserve. And if a patient submits, if a, patient submits a, a, a request for records, um, then you make that same assumption. And the duty to preserve includes text and email communications with or about patients. Um, now, the I don't think that's happening. I don't think text messages now. You, uh, well, there's text messages, and and I I've, I've been sounding this alarm ever since I heard about this tiger text. And I know you folks don't use tiger text, but where something automatically disappears after a period of time. Um, I've not had to deal with this yet, but how 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 can one justify the automatic elimination of any communication regarding a patient um, purely based on the amount of time? We need to have some conversations about that. But everyone's doing it, by the way. So it, it's I mean all of the hospitals that I that I defend, and I've raised this alarm. Um, and I think that the comfort is, well, everyone's doing it, so that's the standard practice. And if it's standard practice, then I'm not hiding anything. I'm just not sure that's going to fly. But a document uh, today is any data that can be compiled into viewable form, whether stored electronically or written on paper. It includes texts, emails, blogs, posts on social media, really all of it needs to be preserved and is discoverable. Um, and that, I don't think that that's happening. And the, the, the risk of not retaining this information um, uh, comes out in court in what's called the doctrine of spoliation, okay? The term spoliation of evidence is a common 
we used in the process of civil litigation. And it arises when one side suspects or uncovers that the other side has deliberately, intentionally, or accidentally, it doesn't have to be deliberate. You, you don't have to, you don't have to um, uh, you know, destroy something intentionally. It can be accidentally or negligently destroyed evidence that's relevant to the case, all right? And spoliated evidence can include physical objects, photographs, documents, and electronically stored information. The spoliation of evidence doctrine arose in the context, this is kind of a famous case, it involved a ladder and a guy fell off a ladder and the ladder company destroyed the ladder. And he wanted to discover, he wanted production of the ladder so that he could prove his, his case of negligent defect or design defect in the ladder. Well, the company had destroyed the ladder. So the, he took the position that you destroyed my opportunity to pursue my case. That you spoiled evidence that deprives me of the ability to prove my case. And so what the court did is they deprived the latter company of defending the liability case as a punishment for not preserving the evidence that they knew or should have known um, was going to be the subject of litigation. So spoliation of evidence occurs when someone with an obligation to preserve evidence regarding a legal claim neglects to do so or intentionally fails to do so. Such a failure to preserve evidence can take place by destroying the evidence, damage to the evidence, or losing the evidence. And when spoliation occurs, the party responsible may be held accountable in court through a variety of different sanctions. They told you the, the latter company was denied the opportunity to defend the case, and that's the ultimate sanction. But here are the uh, options for sanctions for spoliation. First of all, it's at the sole discretion of the trial court. Okay, this is a discretionary ruling, and, and even on appeal, discretionary rulings by trial judges are very hard to overturn on appeal. It can be done. But the standard of review for discretionary ruling is clear and convincing. And the trial judge is always deemed to be the person in the best position to assess facts and circumstances. So it's the trial judge. And remember, our trial judges, I mean, some are okay, but um, you can get a monetary sanction. You can be sanctioned by having an adverse inference instruction. An adverse inference instruction is the judge telling the jury that since you had a duty to preserve evidence and failed to do so, the jury is entitled to infer that the evidence would have been unfavorable to you. Think about that. That's the kiss of death. The judge saying, Dr. So-and-so had a duty to preserve these emails, failed to do so, so you have the right to assume that those emails would be unfavorable to him or her. And the plaintiff's bar getting very creative with this doctrine. I'm, I'm actually defending a case right now. It's an intraoperative vascular surgery complication during an emergency orthopedic surgery in an elderly patient who died on the table and fluoroscopy was used. And um, following the case, the usual number of still images were saved to the chart in accordance with the usual procedure. But not all of the images that were taken during the case were saved, just the usual ones. Well, as you probably know, the C-arm retains the still images for a period of time until they're eliminated from the memory as the machine is used. Well, the plaintiff in that case is claiming that we allow the images to be destroyed despite knowing that the patient died on the operating room table and therefore we had a duty to preserve the evidence and failed to do so. Um, now that case is, it was supposed to be tried. It would have been tried now two years ago. Was, I was walking into court to try that case when, when COVID hit, but that's still yet to be resolved. So, I mean, and you can be sure that these plaintiffs are doing everything they can to, especially now with the electronic chart and the audit trails to identify, you know, places where they can make a spoliation claim because it does the job for them. They don't have to prove the case. They just have to prove you spoil the evidence. Anyway, so why can't I get this to advance? Oh, there we go. So now let's talk about how we can, you know, deal with this. 
the first order of business to is to avoid getting sued. Okay. And the data on strategies hasn't changed much. It's really about maintaining good relationships with patients and families. But the problem with that is it's, it's oftentimes not the patient or their immediate family that becomes the troublemaker. It's Aunt Tilly, the nurse, or the son, you know, who's, you know, swooping in for the kill. So that gets you, and, and, and that is very important. It's important anyway to have good relationships with patients and family, but it's also risk mitigating. Being a good active listener, a lot of complaints by patients. And if you look at the literature that they don't feel that their doctor is listening to them. And, you know, one of the problems with that is when you're banging on the computer while they're there, there's not the eye contact. There's not the, you know, that, that bond that you used to have. Um, I think also, and, and this is important today, as it wasn't in the old days. In the old days, the doctor decided what, what you're going to do and you did it. Well, today, patients decide. And I think engaging patients and families very intensely in the decision-making process is absolutely critical um, because you, it's a joint collaborative decision-making, but at the end of the day, they're the decision-maker. And it's important that they are invested in the decision because people are less inclined to challenge a decision that they participated in making. Um, I find the understate, I find that physicians commonly understate risks in discussions with patients. Not only the risks of a surgical or, or any treatment or any course of treatment, but the, the, um, the post-operative course and the, and, and the side effects. You know, disappointment is the difference between expectation and reality. Right. And so if you create unreasonable expectations, you're going to have a disappointed patient if that's not their reality. The problem is, I know physicians are loath to discourage a patient from something that they feel the patient needs by overstating risks and potential complications. I mean, I understand that. And there is a balance there. But understating the risks is, can get you in trouble. Because if they're disappointed and they say, you didn't tell me this and they're, you know, Remember, patients, everyone's reality is, is their perception. So um, I am an advocate for being very clear about the risks um, and, and what they can expect in the post-operative course. Um, angry patients are high-risk patients. I mean, that's been known forever. So keeping patients happy is risk mitigating. And it's things like the long wait times, timely returning patient phone calls. You know, you have a thousand phone calls to answer. The patient has got one question and they're sitting there waiting for you to call back. Um, so if you can't get to them in short order, have someone call them and create the expectation that Dr. So-and-so will be able to call you between four and five. So again, it's about expectation and reality and disappointment. You know, today's patients are more demanding than ever. They, they know that you're being scored on patient satisfaction because they get the surveys, we all do. Um, and, and, you know, they know that they have some control over your reputation. And, you know, it's a strange thing, but it, it, it gives them power. And the only way to manage it is to, you know, be sensitive to the things that make them angry. You need kind staff, you know, um, it's, 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 the, it's the age of patient satisfaction or, or, or customer satisfaction. I mean, the practice of medicine has now become like a business. Got to have happy customers. Um, here's the other thing that's really important because the challenge comes in the face of the unexpected outcomes. I mean, when, the, when everything goes well and everybody's, you know, I always say when the going is good, everybody's happy. Well, the, the, the challenge is what happens when there's an unexpected outcome. And um, it is really critically important that you not abandon and, and abandon, you don't think you're abandoning the patient, but if you don't remain intensively engaged with them and the family through the, the corrective care process, in their mind, you've, you're abandoning them. You're not with them. And um, we've got examples of many bad outcomes that were not the product of malpractice, but would have become a malpractice case, but for the fact that the physician maintained good relationships with the patient and was intensively engaged with them through the entire process. 
sometimes you want to bury your head in the sand. You can't. You don't have that choice. You have to stay with that patient and the family, and you have to be proactively engaged with them. Um, we, we have a, a, you know, Connecticut Children's has a new candor policy. I don't know if it's new, but there's no question about it. What we are doing and what healthcare is doing generally is when something bad happens, we are going to be totally transparent with the, with the patients. Now, being transparent doesn't, you know, being transparent is critical. But, you know, there's, I would say, you know, you, you have to tell the truth, but there's different ways to tell the truth. So you, are, you want to be careful in how you communicate with patients and how you apologize to them. Um, and again, a correctly delivered apology is not an admission of liability and is not admissible in evidence, but being empathetic and taking ownership with the family of what happened is critically important. And then the other thing patients, and, and they say this, you know, I, I, I'm a little skeptical of some of these survey studies, but patients claim that they want to know what steps are being taken to prevent this adverse outcome from happening, quote, to someone else. Um, and that, that, um, that's important. And that's why we do such a deep dive with adverse outcomes and, and where quality is um, you know, so engaged to ensure that if there's something that was preventable, we're gonna identify it, we're gonna make the changes that are necessary, and we're gonna share with the family what we've done to, to satisfy them that, that you know, what happened to their child is not hopefully gonna happen uh, again. So, so that's how to avoid a lawsuit. Now let's talk about how do you increase the defensibility of your medical malpractice case? Because you're not gonna avoid all lawsuits, that's just not gonna happen. So what can you do? Well, first thing I wanna point out is what you need to do and why you need to do it is driven by three realities. Number one, hindsight, okay? Every medical malpractice case is fraught with hindsight bias, right? In the face of an adverse outcome, you can look back through the retrospectoscope and identify things that could have been done differently that might've avoided the outcome. I mean, you can do it in every case. That's what the plaintiff's experts do. And that is the hill that the defense has to climb in every case, okay? You add to that four to five, now it's probably gonna be six years between the care and the trial that remember the data most providers didn't even see coming, okay? So the case is not in their memory bank. And you add to that, that standards of care is rapidly changing. And not infrequently, the standard of care has changed between the time that you cared for a patient and the time of trial. We have this problem with experts all the time because they look at, they look at a case from 20, you know, 2021 where the care took place in 2016 and they're applying their frame of reference is 2021 care. So the, 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 um, it, it's a challenge and we, we, the defense lawyers, have to drive the, our experts to the realization that remember what we're talking about. Let's, Let's look at the literature. Let's look at what was going on in the medical community back five or six years ago. It's challenging. So here are the, you know, my little uh, hit list of things that are critical to enhance the defensibility of malpractice lawsuits. This is the most critical is number one, documenting what you did is not enough, okay? You must document your thought process and the rationale behind your medical decision-making and your judgments. It, it, because you're not gonna remember your rationale five or six years from now, especially if the standard of care has changed, all right? Or you have changed your practice. Compliance with the standard of care does not mean you have to be right, okay? But it does require that you have the right reasons for what you did. You have to be able to explain your rationale to a jury and contemporaneously documented rationale will be believed by the jury. But you know the plaintiff's experts have a field day when it's not documented because they make up what you thought, all right? There must be clarity in the documentation as to what is in the differential and what the plan is to rule in or out any serious conditions. And you can have serious conditions in the differential that you, you're not, that are low in the differential, but you gotta be sure that if there's anything serious in the differential, even if it's low, that there is a follow-up plan that is gonna capture the, the possibility 
that that serious condition is is in the different is ruled out, you know, as appropriate as you follow the patient, you know, ruling out the higher uh, likelihood diagnoses. And again, your documentation must be detailed enough for you to be able to reconstruct it four years later. You know, why the, the diagnosis that was ultimately made was either not in your differential or not high enough in your differential to, to require, you know, further testing or the patient failed to follow or see the key in these where there's something serious is the follow-up plan. The follow-up plan is critical. Um, your notes must be accurate. Okay. Proofread and sign your notes and resident notes before you sign, you own what you sign, you sign the resident's note, you own it. And, and I'm the, the lapses in proofreading, um, I know it takes time. And again, I said this a hundred times, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you the pitfalls if you don't do it. And I understand what you guys are going through when <laughs> the challenges and the, the tensions that you're trying to manage. You know, my role is I'm in my lane and I'm just trying to share with you the, the, the and you can, you can, you know, delegate some of this stuff to staff members and others, but um, once the note is signed and it's in the chart, that's it. Changing it is not, a viable option. Follow-up instructions to patients, you know, especially if you're keeping them on a short leash because of serious conditions. I like written follow-up instructions, even in the office setting, and they're in the chart, and then there can't be any confusion as to what the patient was instructed to do. And advise patients as to why they need to follow up. This is another, even, we, we, have, we have cases where follow-up was, was advised and ordered and requested by the provider, but the patient never followed up and then something bad happens to the patient and the patient says, well, you didn't tell me I might have cancer. I mean, I would have followed up if I knew why I was following up. So, so the, you have to incentivize the patient to follow up by letting them know that there was something that could be serious um, because the lawyers will find a way, you know, to, to capitalize on the fact, you know, that they didn't have all the information they needed to decide whether they were going to follow up. And I, I am a real advocate. I think you have this by and large, an office protocol to ensure follow-up or to encourage follow-up. You can't force a patient to come in, but you can certainly call them and say, you know, you really need to follow up on this. Um, and again, avoid texting or emailing with patients outside the electronic medical record. And if you do, just be sure you preserve it and get it, scan it and get it in the record. Okay, lastly, God, I know. I want to touch on this. This is really important, throwing colleagues under the bus, you know, bad mouthing. This, this is not a new concept, but um, I, I'm not sure why, but I am seeing more bad mouthing than ever. And I, maybe it's because of the competitive nature of medicine now. Maybe it's because people are, I don't know, but it's happening with increased frequency and it's not a good look. Um, and there's a lot of people publishing on this now. You know, when you throw a doctor under the bus, you throw the profession under the bus. It really does, I think, demean the profession for physicians to be criticizing one another. There was a fascinating study. Well, it was fascinating to me that was done in 2013 by a group of researchers who were looking at the prevalence of bad mouthing of prior physician care. So this was an orchestrated experiment. So they covertly recorded conversations between an a actor patient and a physician. Uh, they were oncologists and family physicians. This was a patient who was portrayed as a middle-aged man who had been treated elsewhere for advanced lung cancer and was getting established in a new community. So he was following up with a new oncologist and family physician. 41% uh, of the encounters commentary was made about the care they received by the previous physician and two thirds of those comments. Okay. So almost, well, 40, 40% of doctors took it upon themselves to comment about the care they had received from the previous physician. Two thirds of those comments were critical, despite the fact that the patient received appropriate care as at that time defined by the national comprehensive cancer network. And, and importantly, these critical comments were initiated by the physicians and not the patients. Of the remaining comments, 29% were supportive and 4% were neutral. So, and it's well known. I mean, there was an article, this was published in the New York Times uh, a while back, a physician, conscientious physician who was named in a malpractice lawsuit, you know, uh, 
the revelation riled me not only because there were no discernible errors in care, but also because I couldn't believe who had provoked the patient to hire a lawyer. It was another doctor. Okay, I'm shocked that nothing was done sooner, the other doctor said when the patient went for a second opinion. You could have died. So the patient sued. There are estimates in the literature that um, 30 to 40% of lawsuits are initiated because of criticisms expressed by a subsequent provider. Um, this, 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 I mean, this is a case, this is just an example. Foot drop, and there's another category of, it's not criticism, but there's another category of documentation that's going on completely unnecessarily and it's fraught with problems. And that is expressing causation opinions. A patient comes to you, they had something happen to them from a prior physician, they come to you and you uh, either badmouth them, which hopefully you won't do, or make a determination that the reason for their bad outcome was something the prior physician did wrong. Here's a good example of that. I had this case, foot drop secondary to hematoma, which is fine because the foot drop was secondary to hematoma, secondary to over -cumidization. okay? The, um, of course, so the, the patient happened to be, this was a patient who it was a rehab patient who developed a foot drop. Patient happened to be on Coumadin, which carries a risk of bleeding. Uh, the surgeon who was summoned to manage the hematoma wrote this note. Well, the surgeon, against his will, became the primary causation expert against the internist. It was a bloodbath. He didn't want to be. He didn't even intend this note to, to, to mean that the doctor who prescribed the Coumadin deviated from the standard of care in how much Coumadin he prescribed. But, you know, words matter. And he didn't think through. And he was the causation. We ended up having to settle this case because it became really ugly. And it's, it's, this is another, this is just a total note, but here's the, this is a note by a physician. Unfortunately, whenever you say, unfortunately, I don't like that word in medical charts, a diagnosis of transverse myelitis was made as the leading diagnosis and neither her primary care physician nor myself were ever contacted. In fact, we had no knowledge that she was even discharged. Now you talk about defensive charting. Everyone was sued in this case in a case that was probably defensible as to everyone in a very complex patient was rendered indefensible to everyone, including the guys who wrote this note, the primary care physician, and I think this was the surgeon. You know, I mean, it was such self-inflicted wounds um, all around. This case cost a lot of money, and I dare say it was unnecessary. And by the way, juries do not generally respect providers who throw one another under the bus. People tend to not respect people who do that in general and juries in particular, it just doesn't help. This is another example. This, this nurses are also a problem. This was a patient who, um, uh, it was a cardiac surgery case where a patient clotted post-op and died. And the patient post-mortem was found to have a factor five Leiden mutation. Well, the standard of care wasn't to screen patients for factor five, but this note goes to the jury in, as evidence this is the patient calling the doctor's office. And she says, she states that RNs at the hospital told her that this hypercoagulable state should have been picked up. And why wasn't it checked until after he died? Lawsuit, you know, and, and I just pulled out some deposition testimony by, uh, uh, given by plaintiffs in malpractice cases as to why they explored suing the doctor. Doctor told me this never should have happened. This is exactly why it's important to be the hands. I mean, this is, this is, was his testimony. And I don't know whether it's true or not, but this is what they claim was said to them by a subsequent physician, which is what led them to explore suing their doctor. What are the consequences of bad mounting? Bad, very demoralizing. And, and importantly, it's usually not based on full and complete information. Your patient comes to you and, you know, I, I don't know, not for nothing, but this may come as a shock to you, but patients do not always tell the truth. <laughs> they tell their side of the story, their perception of reality, and you really have no basis for accepting it at face value. So, um, and, and it's remarkable to me when you, they then go back and end up seeing what the true story is how their perception, that is a subsequent physician's perception completely changes, but oftentimes it's too late. They've already documented in the chart. Um, it's very anxiety provoking and it's frustrating for patients. 
and it often provokes lawsuits and it draws you into the lawsuit. You'll be deposed. You may be named as the plaintiff's expert and it increases the value of the claim beyond what it's worth. I mean, if doctors are, if a treating doctor is going about with a, with a prior treater, I mean, and I'm not talking about being dishonest. You can, and, and you know, what doesn't belong in the medical record are self-serving or accusatory comments, criticisms of care provided by others, arguments and conflicts, opinions on treatment or events in which you were not involved, and conclusion about events that you did not witness. You can certainly document what patients tell you about another provider's care to the extent it's relevant to your role, but put it in quotes. And, and therefore, when you're, when you're asked to testify, you say, that's what the patient told me. I didn't assess one way or the other, the accuracy. I'm just documenting what the patient told me. If you have a difference of opinion with another provider, it happens all the time. Me and my partners, we debate all the time. You know, one person has one thought, one person has another. I mean, there's, there's, medicine is not a cookbook. It's different perspectives and different thoughts and different ways to skin the cat. So it's, that's okay to have difference of opinion. And, but just document a difference of opinion in a fact-based manner, um, rather than being accusatory or, or, or saying, I disagree, you know, my, my feeling is this. Um, and so then it doesn't become fodder, unnecessary fodder in a lawsuit. If the patient raises a question about care provided by someone else, tell the patient to go back to their provider. They're in the best position to explain what their thought process was. Um, so, my suggestions, be cautious when expressing causation opinions in the medical chart, because under existing Connecticut law, if you express a causation opinion in your medical chart, you can be compelled to give testimony as to that opinion. You cannot be forced to give opinions in medical malpractice cases against your will, unless your opinion is stated in your medical chart. If it's in the chart, it's open season. That's the Reading Life Care versus Town of Reading. Whew, sorry. I know I went over my time, but um, I thought it was important to get this information out to all of you. Thank you very much, Joyce. Uh, always incredibly informative and scary at the same time, I guess I would have to say. I <laughs> have a lot of text, but that, you know, I know. informed is better. We It, it is 9.02, so we, we're only going to have time for a couple of questions, and then we will make sure we send the other questions to you directly for a response. Um, I guess we can document the response by text or something like that. It should be okay. Um, by, from Rebecca Moss, thank you for this presentation. Have you seen malpractice suits filed successful or not against a consultant who only provided phone consultation? Consultant provides guidance based on a case details presented by a treating provider. So phone consultation. Yeah, the answer to that is yes. If you, one of the, the issue there, here's the issue. One of the elements of a malpractice claim is, is there a doctor-patient relationship? Okay, so the question is, have you formed a relationship with the patient? Now, there is conflicting law in Connecticut about what the criteria are for there to be a doctor-patient relationship. But there are some, um, there is some support for the proposition that if you express or, or render opinions that lead to care, that you can be sued in amount. Now, if you were to be sued, that case would be defensible. But anytime you give an opinion that you know is gonna be relied upon by someone else that's gonna affect the care of a patient, you should consider that you are vulnerable to potential lawsuit. And if you're not comfortable rendering an opinion without seeing the patient, then, then you know, so there are strategies to, to mitigate that risk, but it definitely is a risk if you've given information that leads to care that it, that ends up adverse to a patient. Thanks. One more question from uh, from Dr. Himes, really interesting one. And our care decisions are increasingly dictated by insurance companies. In fact, the doses of medications we want to use are often denied. We have to use suboptimal doses. In reality, the, co the companies are practicing medicine. And I note in the chart that my care is being influenced by the insurance company. How should we handle this? First of all, I think you should document in the chart that you have advocated for a certain dose. The insurance company has rejected it. Secondly, I think you have to advocate to the insurance company on behalf of your patient. You're, and, you know, patients, I mean, you can still get care that isn't reimbursed by insurance companies. So I think you need to let the patient know that the insurance company is, is denying you the, uh, denying them that dose or, um, 
So that's the best you can do. That is a problem. <laughs> There's no question about it that, that insurance companies are, are basically providing medical care and limiting the care that patients can get. Great. Uh, again, uh, Joyce, thank you very much for, for joining us. I, I know you're, you're out of town and uh, for, for family reasons, I appreciate you logging in and as always keeping us well informed with our risk management team here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, please, uh, you, can have, you can have access to this presentation via our podcast. Uh, that's a brand new feature this year. Uh, very excited to have that for everyone. Uh, log in, you know, get, claim your CME MOC credit. Uh, we will see you again on Tuesday for another Grand Rounds. Uh, be well, be safe. Uh, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.